Hello, and welcome to Codish, an exploration of the lives of modern developers. Join us as we dive into topics like languages and frameworks, data and event-driven architectures, and individual and team productivity, all tailored to developers and engineering leaders. This episode is part of our Heroku in the Wild series. Hello, and welcome back to Codish. My name is Jonan Scheffler, and I'm a developer advocate here at Heroku, and I am joined today by Brendan Murphy from Kajabi. Tell us about yourself, Brendan. Yeah, uh, first off, thanks for having us on. We're really excited for this opportunity. I am the CTO at Kajabi. Um, I've been with the company about nine years since its inception in 2010. Uh, Kenny and I, Kenny's the one of the original founders of Kajabi, and he's now the CEO. Uh, go way back. We were actually roommates in college. We'd always wanted to work on something. And then around 2010, he started calling me and saying, uh, you know, hey, I've got the opportunity we can work on now. And for us, you know, being able to put together some stacks we really liked and those two primary ones being Heroku and Rails to start a company was really exciting. So uh, this was in 2010. So it was. Yeah, that was pretty early on in Rails uh, land, I think, still. Right. It, it was. Yeah, I think at the time, um, I think maybe Rails 3 was just first coming out. The asset pipeline didn't exist. Heroku did not have implementation for Bundler. You would kind of deal with gyms uh, another way. So we've got to see an awesome evolution on kind of the, the Ruby platform side on Heroku as well. So you mentioned that uh, your friend Kenny is the CEO, Kenny Reader yeah. is his name. And uh, what is it that you do there? Uh, I'm the CTO. So I'm sitting over kind of the tech side of the house primarily where we focus on uh, the software itself that's running on Heroku, uh, making sure you know that we've got good schemas, uh, making sure the team's well-staffed and equipped for what they need to do, both from kind of a headcount perspective, as well as knowing that the tech we've got in the background, you know, what we have on Heroku, what we have on Amazon S3 is, is doing what it, uh, we needed to do, uh, and, and just overseeing kind of the general management of the tech teams. Uh, how many from, teams are there now? How many how many technical people do you have? Uh, you know, that's a great question. We're actually growing right now. We're still a pretty small team, but we're growing aggressively. Uh, probably by the time this airs, I think the dev side of the house will be up to maybe like 17 people. Wow. All um, right. Yeah. And it's it's been great. Uh, I think that's an aspect of us uh, that tees off of Heroku really well. I think kind of for the way our team works and for our needs... Uh, and the speed we like to work, um, it's one of the reasons we've stuck with Heroku for sure. So tell me about Kajabi. What does Kajabi do? Uh, I think the easiest way to describe it is that we're, well, I think most of your Shopify, your customers are familiar with Shopify. So I always use that as an example. Mm -hmm. You can think of it as Shopify, but for digital products. Uh, so if we were to give more of the company elevator pitch, we would say it's an all-in-one business platform for delivering uh, digital products online, what the majority of our customers are doing is putting together video courses. Uh, you know, we have a customer, for instance, that teaches tennis classes online. So he and, uh, you know, his video team might go out to the tennis course or tennis uh, court rather and film a video of him talking about how to improve your serve. And maybe he breaks it down into kind of beginner, intermediate, advanced courses. And then we'll just, you know, use our platform to up upload that online, make it really easy for our students to consume. We have native integrations with both Stripe and PayPal. So if you want to get the get off the ground running quick and you know start taking credit card payments, for instance, you've already got all your content, all you have to do is 
upload it, uh, and then connect with a Stripe Connect account. You're good to go and start charging money online for your courses. So I, I'm a developer advocate at Heroku. Turns out I know rather a lot about this product. Let's say, hypothetically, I want to start selling courses on how to use Heroku. I'm sure my employer would be totally fine with this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I put together some courses. I make some videos and I decide what I'm going to charge for those things. Is there like pricing that is enforced by the platform or? No, and that that's a great question. I think that's one thing. One direction we decided to go that's a bit uh, distinguishing from our competitors is we actually experimented that at one point with a platform we built kind of mid-stage in the company. And what we found were that our customers really like to retain uh, like their own branding and their own pricing strategies and things like that. So while there might be some competitors out there who would say, you're only allowed to charge between like 50 and you know $100 for your product or something like that. Uh, we're outside of that game. Uh, we let our customers charge what they want it obviously has to be within reason because both Stripe and PayPal, as well as most other card providers, have kind of minimum and maximum prices, right? So, oh, I'm curious. Actually, yeah. I've never heard about this. What is the maximum price? I so it, it, you think I could charge someone ten thousand dollars in one go? It, that's an interesting pick because last I read the document a few years ago, I think ten k was the max on Stripe. Um, I, that seems a bit high for me. You know, we do have a lot of customers because they're involving their training with some kind of real life coaching, as well as it, maybe it gets you ticket to event as well. Uh, like you go out for the weekend with VIP customers or whatever and talk about the things you've learned in person. So they might be charging around like 2000, that might kind of be on the high side. Um, but yeah, I, I think in theory, I think Stripe and PayPal will, I'm not as positive about PayPal, but that's interesting to yeah. me. Okay. So these I, are the I kinds would, of things. I wouldn't advise are. that though. <laughs> yeah, no, I yeah. won't, I will not set up my course and charge $10,000 yeah. for it, but, uh, this is the kind of stuff you pick up when you're working in a, in the space that you Absolutely. are that I wouldn't otherwise know. So yeah. tell me a little bit about how you're using Heroku. You'd mentioned that Kajabi makes extensive use of data clips. I'm curious about that. Yeah, we do. And I think it's something that's evolved a little over the over time, uh, both because Data Clips has evolved and we've evolved as a company. So I know when we first uh, started using it, we were still a small team, but the instant appeal to us was kind of business analytics style queries that we wanted internally. Um, you know, we do have some of our data in external business intelligence systems if we want to query, but it, it's not like the full data set or anything like that. We haven't found that need yet. We've been mm -hmm. able to do SQL queries for a lot of that. Um, and it really served to bridge the gap at that point when we wanted to give access to different team members. You know, if we wanted the sales team at the time or like the marketing guys to, uh, to have access to that, it was a really easy way to grant that and to write the query and to not have to build it into the app. Prior to us using data clips, I think what we did a lot was we would have to kind of write code that would go in and do the SQL query for us. And, uh, you know, I love Active Record and Rails. I think it's good most of the time, but a lot of time when you're just wanting to do like a business query to get over to your marketing, your sales team, you don't want to sit down and write like a robust suite of tests and necessarily have to go through Active Record and have right. to do a deploy for your customer, for your internal customer to have access to that data. Uh, you know, that, that all makes sense when you're developing software, you kind of want that reliability there and, and a bit of those constraints and, and get and all of that behind it. But when the marketing team's like, hey, do you, we just want to see a daily count of 
how many signups occurred yesterday. Right. It didn't make sense to have to jump through all those hoops. It was much faster for us just to say, hey, we're going to drop a data clip and then uh, we'll share the link with you so you can have access to it. I think the other advantage to using something like um, the data clip system in doing that is I found that, that those queries tend to churn a lot. Like someone from marketing mm-hmm. might say, we want, we want this query and then we'll give it to them and they'll come back and say, hey, it doesn't look exactly how I want it. And we might talk in, back and forth some more. And it turns out, oh, they only wanted active uh, customers. We didn't really communicate right. that up front. If that had to go through a full deploy cycle and, and test cycle and review cycle and all that to get out, it would be kind of painful uh, and unnecessary. So- so data clips, I'm not sure if I actually explained this. Data clips is actually a product that allows you to take a SQL query and you put it into this web UI and you get your results set back. Uh, so it's very uh, valuable to the CEO who is curious about how many users in New York uh, purchased a falafel at our retail locations or whatever it is that you want to find out in any given moment. So uh, the... The value to a company is that a lot of times these requests end up being actual code in your application that you've got to deploy or so you've got to have some developer working on like a admin uh, interface that allows people access to this kind of data, lets people dig through user data uh, to identify trends and whatever market research they're trying to do. Uh, but when you are using data clips internally, you write up query and you send it off and then you're good. Yeah. And, and definitely these days, uh, you know, we, we started out kind of consuming it small team, uh, so it didn't really benefit us quite as much back then. But today, uh, I, I'd say we're probably giving an queries to the marketing team, our direct marketing team, the majority of days per week, I think a, a data click question will come up. The other area we use a lot because it does kind of have this idea of privacy baked in and there's something like a password and it it really makes the URL secret, right? Is we do have some customers, either they got in a bind before where they really need access to data and the app just doesn't provide it yet. It's on the near horizon, but they really could use it for a launch and we don't want to leave them in that bind or some VIP customers who really want that deep insight to data. And we'll go and write a data clip specifically to their product and share it with them. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah. And, and it's really cool because, right, we're talking about a connection. We'll put it on our follow up, follower database. Uh, you know, we, we control the performance params of the query. It's on our follower. It's read only. Um, you know, I, th- I think in the current version, they can still see kind of the properties of the query, but they're not going to be able to go in and change and say, tell it to return this column that we left out of the original. Uh, right. The, the original clip. So that value of being on the follower database too. I mean, if you're putting it out there in your production application, I guess you'll be using followers uh, naturally yeah. like a leader follower configuration, yeah. but it's, it's nice to know that nothing that anyone is doing in data clips will ever impact your production application. Yeah, absolutely. That is uh, that's a, a big tip to leave people with. I forget where we learned that originally. It was probably some blog post out there. But there's definitely been a few times since then, I think, where someone got a little daring with a data clip and tried to basically eat up memory unintentionally. And we'll get an email from Heroku that's like, oh, you're almost out of memory or whatever. Yep. And it, it, but hey, it's, it, you know, it's on kind of our spare follower. Uh, so I, I definitely recommend people do that and not run it against their primary 
I love those emails from Heroku that I get that say things like, hey, your database was horribly broken and your production app would have gone offline, but we fixed it magically. I hope you slept well. Yeah, yeah. It's one of my favorite features. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So you were talking about Dataclips uh, in the context of using it for business intelligence, but you also mentioned earlier uh, to me that you were using it for your Slack bot, which I thought was interesting because that's not a common use case. I don't hear of that much. No, and, and... I, I think I'm kind of clever that we came up with this somewhat hacky idea on our side, but it's actually working really well. So uh, for some background on this, we actually, I think, started toiling with Slack bots maybe three or four years ago. I think we were using the Hubot framework and got into it a little, but it didn't really stick. Like we had a shopping list or something like that, but nothing that was like really deep for the company. And then I think we wrote another one later in Ruby using Slack, uh, like some low-level Slack stuff. And then this latest iteration, we're using the Lita IO framework, which if any of your listeners out there don't have a Slack bot, but they do use Ruby, I'd highly recommend you check out Lita IO. Uh, it just Spell Lita for me. Easy. Yeah, it's L-I-T as in Tom A. Okay. So, so Lita.io. Um, it's awesome. It, it, it makes it a little more abstract and higher level. Now, one of the things we got really excited about on our side once we saw kind of the excitement that people were having around the bot in general out there, the marketing team, when they started doing more campaigns, they wanted some more real-time feedback into how it was doing. Now, in the past, we would always use a data clip to do that, right? We'd give it to the marketing team. They could share it amongst themselves and then log into the web page and see it. Uh, What we started moving towards was providing some handlers in the Lita bot that could answer those questions for specific campaigns. Uh, so, you know, where we could give them the data before, this was a little cooler because people were doing it in like public Slack channels. And there's definitely a difference between two users who maybe are setting a few desks apart and they pull down that marketing stat that says how much success you had yesterday versus somebody doing it in a public Slack channel, because that really helps to kind of build excitement around it. Right. And you're, so, you're disseminating yeah. information kind of passively. Then someone happens across it. They learn yeah. that the Slack bot is capable of doing this yep. thing and they're doing their own stuff. Yeah. So the, the, the cool part about really that marketing style data was at first when I started needing it, I thought, okay, well, this is going to be a little annoying because I'm going to have to build out an API layer somewhere, either on you know a third application and then expose our, our database to that application or we can just build it in our primary application and then we have to deploy. None of that really sounded exciting to me. Like if if we're, you know, rolling quick and it's Friday and and you know, we're down to the wire launching a new marketing campaign, I don't want to have to be like, "Okay, cool. You can talk to the bot, but it's going to be a, you know, come out and deploy like two and a half hours from now or an hour from now." Right. And have to go through that cycle. So what we realized was since we write all this data in data clips, Let's actually just keep doing that. And then what we do on the back end is we just have maybe 20 lines of wrapper script around Ruby wrapper script. I think we use a lightweight REST client to call data clips basically as our data database. So So instead of going straight to your production database, you're going through data clips through the API? Yeah, we we what we do in the application is we kind of have a map that says if we want to get data about partner sales for yesterday, like the summary layer, here's the Heroku data clip URL. And then uh, the client on our side, um, we just tell it, hey, go fetch that URL. And I think it's a little lower level client, so it needs to fetch the CSV 
redirect that's authenticated to S3. It grabs that, and actually, I said CSV, but actually, we use uh, JSON. It's a little. Oh, that's right. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and so we grab the JSON that you guys have stuffed on us. I think it's S3 for that, and then just parse it out a little and, and wrap it in some lightweight data structures on our side. But it's awesome. I mean, there was one night. I think it was a Thursday. During that day, we started a new marketing campaign. I think we deployed it that day. And then that night I was remembering, oh, hey, this went live tonight and we don't have a way for the marketing team to see it and get excited about it. So I think I just spent maybe 10 minutes, added an endpoint uh, to the to the Slack bot that can answer that question and then wrote the data clip on Heroku. And just so within 10 minutes, I was able to update our Slack bot and deploy it because it's got a really small test suite and it's only for internal use. It's not for you know production customers. Right, use. yeah. And so you it, just it, shipped to the bot and then it worked. Yeah. And it, it was super satisfying. I didn't have to go and like update an API or create, make sure, you know, we could answer all the a- API questions that we needed for that endpoint. It was just like, let's write a data clip, you know, let's, let's get this running. And, and that was really satisfying to realize that, you know, we had done in like five to 10 minutes, what might take us a little more time. That's really not necessary for that kind of thing, right? You right. want to be much more careful and methodical when you're talking about working on the software that is powering kind of your core platform. But when it comes to, you know, being fast and furious about a marketing campaign, you don't need those same levels of safety, even though I think we've got enough safety in data clips with kind of the privacy and the version history and stuff like that. Absolutely. And those are things that like, I think looking at data clips, it's a pretty simple product, right? Like if yeah. we, we as developers, we look at that thing and we're like, Oh, I could build that thing. Right. Yeah. But then, Shipping it uh, is not necessarily the hard part. You're maintaining it and you're adding those privacy features, those security features. And now we want it to present JSON. And those are all things that take time. My case to people has always been that like, yeah, you could build your own data clips. You can build your own Heroku uh, Mm -hmm. from scratch, but you're, you are uniquely qualified to be building features for your users. You understand your code base. You understand your users. You can offload the construction of data clips and every Mm -hmm. other feature of Heroku to us and then yeah. free yourself up to be being, and I, I actually kind of think that it's irresponsible behavior as developers to be spending our time on those kinds of things. I love it, to be clear. It's super fun yeah. for me to build those tools. Yeah. But if I have the option to buy someone else's tool and use theirs and then spend my time building actual features, I, I feel like I have an obligation. So I used to work yeah. on the tools team and every time okay. I deployed an app, I got an email from, you know, before we, there's like a production checklist you go through before we're able right. to launch the app into production, you get an email from the red team and they're like, Hey, we just pulled apart your Swiss cheese app. Yeah. Nice security. How about you fix yeah. all these holes and then we'll ship yeah. it. And, and we, we could do that and we could maybe, you know, maybe there are a little extra things we could get going with something like Metabase or some other product, but like, I, I still don't feel like where we're at in this specific area of need it's not worth it, right? right? We're trading like some minute gains for lots of operational and, you know, especially security complexity around that. So yeah, building it is not necessarily yeah. the expensive part, but yeah. securing it. I mean, I, yeah. I think the expensive part might be when you leak your user accounts and get sued in the EU. Yeah, <laughs> fine. Well, right? when, and, and, you know, the question is, when does securing it stop? And the answer to that is never, never, you know? ever. As yep. soon as you sign up for that, you're now perpetually signed up for that. So so from that perspective, then, let's talk about some other features of Heroku. Uh, you are using followers you talked about and how um, you I, you mentioned to me that you had had some problems storing uh, 
too much data in your database or running backups against primaries and lock tables, there were some difficulties around yeah. using Postgres generally? Or first, first of all, why are you using Postgres? Why would you choose Postgres as a database? Well, honestly, part of it, I think, is history. At the, you know, at the time we went with Postgres on Heroku, uh, it, it was the offering. Um, but I think the other thing is, and I think this is borne out, is they've really proved to be, I think, the best open source database team. Yep. Um, I think at the time we started, there was maybe a little more argument around that between um, ISQL and Postgres. Mm, um, that's fair. With, yeah, I mean, even kind of pre-2010, I think there was kind of some rumblings around some of the, the MySQL licensing issues and things like that. Right. But, it, it, you know, 2010, it kind of had the sheen of something that was also going to go places. So that was, you know, that was more of a gut feeling on our part. But I think that certainly bore out. It worked out pretty well for you. Postgres oh, is mean, the one true database, yes, in my opinion. I mean, how many... How many articles have you seen in the past like four years that have the line somewhere in them? Tell me why you need Mongo anymore, right? right? Because Postgres has this. So we actually early on started using some of the, the cool features. And I know MySQL and other databases have their own implementations of this, but Postgres implementation of this has turned out rock solid. But I think in our many of our applications, we're using H stores. Mm -hmm. We're using different JSON data types. Um, and if you're using and, those and kinds of, if you need yeah. a document store, then why not use the Postgres JSONB columns? You can do your MapReduce queries against this binary JSON yeah. format that you're storing in there. Absolutely. I mean, it, 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 it yeah. in my opinion, entirely supplants the use of a thing like MongoDB. Absolutely. And, and here's the other thing I think, and maybe this isn't so Postgres, Postgres specific as it is relational database specific, but um, if I can get kind of that ACID, uh, performance of the database, right? especially through the use of something like uh, transactions to get us um, that kind of reliability out of our database. And we can have performance and do that. I love doing that. Yep. Um, any Anytime we have to kind of break out of SQL transactions and manage that in an application layer or a distributed layer, it's possible. But I've seen that it just it never does as well as if you can handle that in a, in the transaction in Postgres. So I am a huge fan of Postgres generally. I think you made the yeah. right choice. But 2010, you're right, was a pretty um, uh, lucky time to make that decision because I don't yeah. think it was clear at the time that Postgres was going to win. But right. if I have to, if I have need for something like Redis, I can use Postgres for that too. I can just turn off F Store, and it's actually a faster version of Redis. I just I wish that I could convince more people to start using Postgres and quit mucking about with all these other data products because the number yeah. of times that I hear from people that we are outgrowing our NoSQL solution, we've gotten to a point right. where things are too complicated and we need out. It just um, enforcing, I think, at the software layer, mm -hmm. your your relationships. A lot of people say that these are like schema list, which is not actually true, right? It's just right, enforced right. at the software level. They do it in the ORM instead yeah. of in the database itself. I like it when I try to write a nil value to a, a email column in my database when my database actually throws up. I want Postgres to Absolutely. say, like, we do not put nils here. Yeah. Uh, but that value is not offered by something like a large document store. You've got to Absolutely. do that at the software layer. And things yeah. can get pretty complicated and spaghetti-like as you get bigger. Absolutely. I, I think, too, to kind of extend the answer beyond just kind of the technical abilities of Postgres. You know, you asked why we chose Postgres. It definitely wasn't chosen in a vacuum. It was chosen because 
we knew that Heroku would be operating it and mm-hmm. have an operational team behind it and on-call teams. What was really intriguing, you know, about the the value add of, of Postgres was the operational capabilities that Heroku has behind it. Right. And that those emails that I get in the middle of the night, or I, I wake up in the morning and I've got an email that's like, hey, your database failed, but it was no problem. We promoted a follower and you had no downtime. You're welcome. Yeah, so that, that's, that's a great point. And I think it's something that maybe sometimes when kind of discussions about, uh, let's call it total cost of ownership around right. running a database on Heroku come up, that sometimes I think they might get missed. Um, and sometimes I, I wonder if maybe that's due to kind of ex- background and experience. You know, before I came to Kajabi, I, I was working on a Rails app and I was kind of a programmer, but um, I'd say I was a, a bit more of like a DevOps type, even though DevOps didn't exist really at the time as a term. Let's let's say I was a systems engineer, right? So mm-hmm. I was maintaining uh, hundreds of DNS and SMTP servers MySQL servers for different internal and external needs at a large tier one ISP. And we, you know, that was kind of my first real technical job. And it was the first time I carried an on-call. Originally it was a pager and then a cell phone for work. Oh, that was so fun for like the first day. Didn't you feel important? Oh yeah. The first you 24 you're, hours, you're like, oh, yeah, this you, is great. You thought you're so important. But then, you know, when you realize that your team's also responsible for the power in your local data center and the data center goes down and then the power goes down and suddenly none of your servers and the battery backup doesn't work. And you have to go turn off like 200 servers and it's your fault when it's raining and it's lightning at at 7, 7 PM or something like that. So I'd had a lot of experience before with kind of the pain points of failing hardware and failing platforms and things like that. And it didn't, it, it's not what interested me. What interested me was, working on the software and casting all that other stuff aside, leaving that, I mean, yes, it's still our application. We still take responsibility and dive in on that, but you know, we have that peace of mind that we are, uh, you know, we've got an ops team behind the problem that's bigger than ourselves. Right. And you don't have to worry about having a team of your own. I think that total cost of ownership is the piece that's hardest for me to convey. What I talk to people yeah. is that, that building it is not the expensive part. You right. could probably cobble something together. You, you're going to put together a deployment pipeline when you're starting your company, but that's going to take you a lot of time. If I think about like, yeah. if you and I are sitting here today, we come up with a great startup idea, right? Let's say we ship our MVP in two weeks, probably yeah. a week of that under normal circumstances is us setting up servers and IAM profiles and getting everything Absolutely. organized for our deployment yeah. pipeline. Yep. And being able to skip that is a huge advantage, I think, for Absolutely. companies. Are and, and I think, too, I mean, our Heroku bill, I, I'm assuming, is probably one of the it, it's towards the high tier on Heroku. Like mm-hmm. we're not we're probably pushing it a little more than the average Heroku customer. And but even at even at that high, even at that high end for like a Heroku bill or something, it still wouldn't really be enough for us to go out and hire maybe two or three. Right experienced DevOps people. Which is what it would take to build and maintain your own infrastructure. Easily. Absolutely. I mean, you can't you can't put two people on call for a real infrastructure. You're going to at least need to have three. And our, our bill right now doesn't even cover three people. Yeah. It, it would probably barely cover two people. I so. mean, you could put two people on call. You just wouldn't have them yeah. around the company very long. If you, if you want to build churn into your organization. Exactly. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Engineering yeah. for churn. So yeah. t- tell me about this... Uh, Problems that you had with with Postgres. Yeah, so I think you had mentioned the one about uh, backups. We were, and I can't remember if this is in the Heroku docs somewhere, and it's one of those things when you hear it 
in hindsight, you think, well, gosh, that's obvious. That was kind of silly on our part, but we've been doing backups on all our apps for a very long time against the primary data store. Oh, and yeah. And the, the primary data store for our newest and most successful application uh, is very, very, very large uh, by Heroku Postgres standards. And it was taking, you know, hours to complete. So we, we still had full production protection from those databases. You know, we weren't, it wasn't necessarily like breaking the app or anything. Sure. Like that. It just slows and down your queries. Yeah. It, well, until one morning when we did a deploy and there was, I think, a lock that the backup had taken in oh. order to do its backup effectively. And we had, I think, an index add, which we always add our indexes concurrently because we know that's safe. Right. But kind of adding this new index in conjunction with the lock that backup had uh, in conjunction with us doing a deploy kind of created this perfect storm. And it really slowed our app down for maybe 15 minutes. Wow. So, but the solution was easy, right? We wrote Heroku and was like, what's going on? And I think you, you all got back to us and said, well, you've got backups running on the primary and they kind of went to war with each other a little. Yeah. The, it's awesome that the solution is easy, right? We just don't take a backup off that. We take it off a follower, yep. which we already had in place. If we didn't have in place, we would have got it in place that day and cut the back over to, to occur from from that as well. So. so that was a pretty quick fix to find. You just emailed support and they got back to you? They just said? Yeah, I think our we've got an SRE uh, named right. Brent out in uh, Florida that handles a lot of this. And that that was a pretty fast return time on that one, yeah. Nice. So uh, why would you use something like Postgres on Heroku instead of RDS? I think we've covered a little bit of this territory, yeah. but I want to ask the question. Well, I think... Uh, I mean, one thing to keep in mind is I'm not intimately familiar with RDS these days. It's it's a bit antiquated, so there might be some office people out there that say making this sound harder than it is. But for you know, from my perspective, there's a lot of tooling that her, you know, when you say Postgres, I think you really have to say Heroku Postgres because it's all the backup tooling around it. Uh, it's you know the point in time backups. You're right. It's not just the database anymore. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so for us, the, you know, the reason for us to use it is because we see it as a higher level abstraction that we're using. You know, we, we do still need to think about it at the application layer as a, as a Postgres database, we have to go in and optimize our queries and things like that. But, you know, the ability to spin up a fork or a follower through a pretty high level command with the Heroku command line, right. which is the same tool we use for maintaining other parts of our app, like domains and stuff mm -hmm. like that. Uh, makes it pretty welcoming to d developers and feel pretty good yeah. for them to be able to do that, right? The ability to kind of issue a command and then securely get a SQL console on one of the databases if we need to execute a SQL command for, for and, some diagnostic purpose. And know that it's safe, that what you're doing. I mean, there you, of course, have right. the capacity to connect to your production database on Heroku. Right. We give you infinite ability to shoot your own foot off, but yeah. uh, you can do things in a safe way. I just, I like very much the way that the the follower infrastructure is set up because I can know that I'm not going to damage things. Absolutely. And, and then I think there's another feature that when we learned about it, it, it kind of ties in with, with the old fork, fork and follower, but Heroku has point in time restores, right. which I think we're there for quite a long time before we, we had this half hour call with the data team and we asked a question at one point and they said, did you know you can restore to point in time? 
which has been a huge lifesaver for us. Awesome. Um, I'm sure, I'm sure we could build that ourselves or hire ops people to build that. But the fact that it was there uh, when we needed it and it was easy to use yep. and that you guys even thought to build it um, was, let's put it this way. It really saved our bacon very bet, well on yep. quite a few occasions. The so. time when you need point in time recovery for databases, yeah. you're certainly glad it's there. I feel the same way about the releases, the rollback. Yeah. I've My first deploys... Uh, I started writing software maybe eight years ago, so it was kind of mm-hmm. early on. But I remember distinctly like staring at a new relic graph while right. I pushed the deploy button and being like, please yeah. work, please work. Because if you didn't, <laughs> we had to unroll that deploy, it took us yeah. minutes. I mean, we had right. if we deployed something bad to production, it took us a long time to fix it. And we yeah. had real downtime. And now I have this like instant go back undo button that, that – yeah. It saved me so many times that yeah. I've done something silly. I was up too late coding yeah. and shouldn't have been working on the app anyway. Uh, I, I really appreciate those features that protect me from myself. Absolutely. And, and you know, some of the listeners might be wondering at, at an application layer, some of the er- other areas that's useful, where it's been really useful for us is if we had to do some maintenance cleanup, maybe because of a bug and we made a mistake. So um, one probably... One of the mistakes we made before, this is a couple of years ago, was we were going to clean out some spam form submissions for a customer. And we just, we kind of dropped the ball that day and over cleaned. Uh-huh. Yep. Uh, you know, fortunately it wasn't a huge, it, it wasn't a really deep impact on, on the customer, but we had, ju- I think this was about one month or maybe three weeks after we first heard about this capability and we just looked at each other and said, oh, this is this is no problem. Like this modeling is not that complicated. So we just found in our log where we issued that delete uh-huh. and then, you know, spun up a, a forked database that was one second prior to when that delete. Oh, nice. You just dumped the data back out. Exactly. And I mean, to, to kind of like tie it all back together, people probably think I sound like a Heroku out at this point. But I, I love <laughs> I loved how how well this worked. Uh, you know, I'm trying to get this back up. I found out about this problem when I came into work that morning. So my brain's still foggy and everything. And I'm thinking, okay, so now I've got this other one spun up. I need to reconnect an active record adapter to a secondary database. And I was Googling for a couple minutes how to do that because that's not something you typically do right. in the Rails app, right? Yeah. It, so you kind of forget how to do it and have to have to Google and remember. And then I realized like, no, wait a second. I'm only going for about 200 records here. So again, I went back to data clips. Oh, I just I halted my Google search because I, I realized I can figure this out and it would probably be nice to know, but I'm not going to figure it out as fast as I want. So I just made a data clip to go and generate me a CSV of the 200 rows or whatever we'd accidentally deleted for this customer and then exported it as CSV. And when we did the fix up on the production application, it was easy because now we just had CSV, which is very parsable. We just right. ran the Ruby CSV parser over it. And had a lot of confidence that we were good to go. Depending on so. the CSV, it is very parsable. I have so many problems <laughs> with like the open data set CSVs and yeah. things. But that's oh, awesome yeah. to sidestep this. I, so I was trying to think of how to do that. I can't remember <laughs> how to connect to this database. But I would definitely have just gone with the data clips thing had I thought yeah. of it. When in doubt, data clips. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, you had these uh, issues with the Postgres thing, more like learning experiences, I think, that were resolved Absolutely. quickly for the organization. Yeah. Uh, and now you are happy with the way things are on Heroku. If you were in your dream world, if we add a feature in the next year for you around data specifically, what would we add? 
Um, potentially uh, larger data stores. Oh yeah. I think for us, it really comes down to uh, the size of data on disk mm -hmm. uh, could potentially become an issue. Yep. But there's other ways to tackle that too. I mean, one is we know that on our side, the way we're storing some particular data, we could do more efficiently. Right. So, you know, on the one hand, I kind of want you to come out with more space if we need it. But on the other, I kind of like having that lower limit as a motivator for us to look at ways to store that in a more cost efficient way. So this is the way I feel about a lot of features on Heroku, actually, because Heroku adheres pretty strictly to the 12 factor, the, right. uh, the tenets of software development described in, in 12 factor. And mm -hmm. they they really are a pretty opinionated platform. Occasionally, I find myself in a situation where I'm thinking, man, I really wish I could do this thing, but I know better. I know every time I'm like, ah, you shouldn't do this bad hacky thing that you want to do. Yeah. And that's why Heroku is preventing you from doing it. In this case, like I want to put a, a password into my code base or something. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I mean, this is an yeah. obvious example and nothing that I want to do anymore, but we force right. you to keep those in environment variables. And so if you, yeah. you have that problem, it can be something that you have to overcome. But I agree with you that the upper bound for the size of a Postgres database, I'm sometimes shocked how many customers are able to hit that. And it's usually because they've just jammed everything into a single database. Yeah. They don't, they don't have much of a um, service oriented architecture uh, mm -hmm. uh, split out yet, you know, and when you break things yeah. down into microservices, it makes things very easy. You've got a, a service that handles that user's table, which is going yeah. to be quite large or whatever the big one is for each company. Yeah. It's different, right? Yeah. It, it's an interesting question too, because, uh, you know, retroactively, I might've answered it a little differently. One of the other problems we ran into recently uh, were just saturating the Ser database server with connections. Mm -hmm. um, I think uh, on the on the tier we're on, I think we cap out maybe at 500 connections, and it's a hard cap. And wow. I think two of those get reserved by Heroku for administrative purposes. Mm -hmm. so I think you've got maybe 498. We did short disposal. you two of your 500. That's true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like getting a computer with a hard drive, and the OS is on it. Oh, right? the worst. Yep. <laughs> it, it just it happens. Yeah. You, you learn to live with it. But um, so that was actually turning out to be an issue for us because we have a proc file. It's not huge, but I think it's about like nine or 10 lines long at this point. A lot of it is just different sidekick workers. Okay. Uh, you know, we found that we organize our stuff both into priority, but also some of the work uh, we isolate from each other entirely apart from the database uh, by just running them as different workers because we found, you know, if, hey, if this worker gets locked up, that's fine. You know, it's kind of it's kind of like a half step to microservices with background workers on Heroku. Right. I mean, it's a yeah, good like transition. Like exactly. It, it, it to to kind of making that context. The the downside was, you know, because we're using that in, in conjunction with um, auto scaling, uh, we use HireFire to scale our, our web and our background worker dynos. We were hitting that limit sometimes. So the retroactive answer is, I would have told you connections, but you know, now that Heroku's, I think it's out of beta or it's nearly out of beta, the Heroku PG Bouncer yeah. being built in and, and maintained by Heroku, that, you know, that's the obvious answer there. And that's what solved the problem for us. Uh, initially, when we were looking at it, we're like, okay, how can we make a build pack and set this up ourselves on Heroku? We didn't really want to do that. And that's when we found out that Heroku had the capability to really handle it on our behalf. So we went from having kind of deploy issues around, um, database connections and scaling and stuff like that 
um, which would have gotten even more problematic for us now, because at that point we were not using Heroku preboot and now we are. So when we do a deploy now, we really consume database connections, mm -hmm. but we don't really anymore because PG bouncer is really cutting them down for, for us. So if you've got other customers out there, if there's other people listening, they're like, man, we're really high on these connections. I'm sure they would have heard about it, but they definitely want to look into PG Bouncer if they haven't yet. I love PG Bouncer, especially because the Postgres docs for it describe its brutality level. You can set a brutality <laughs> level. How crushing do you want this hand that yeah. destroys your connection pools? I like it. <laughs> well, That's funny. Brendan, I think we have covered most of the things. If there's anything that you wanted to add, though, did I miss anything that you wanted to talk about? No, I, I think that's great. I mean, I think the one thing I'd add at a more general level, I think that's interesting about our experience with Heroku and this, like I said, this is general, it really goes beyond just Postgres, is we like having that abstraction layer for our engineering team of what the platform is. Right. I, I think the benefit it's provided to us, you alluded to it earlier, one of them is obviously being able to focus on the application and not the operation of the application. And it's for the scale we're at now, and I think the scale we're going to we're going to grow into aggressively over the coming years. We're still going to be able to do that on Heroku. It's great for that. But one of the other really cool things, you know, you mentioned the twelve factor app early on. I think Adam Wiggins, that name I'm sure rings a bell for a lot of Heroku employees and customers. I think was one of the original co-founders of Heroku. The original yeah. Team at Heroku. yeah, and I remember him giving a talk in like 2012, and he's he was. One of the things he was talking about uh, is in line with the 12-factor app. He was saying, you know, you want to live close to production. And the message I took away was kind of twofold at the time. One was he said, you know, you want to be able to have your, your environments like similar to each other. And this was even before I think people were really starting to get into Docker and containerization and everything. So Heroku, I think, did that part really, really well, especially at the time. But I think the other area we saw a lot more in our team was they got to live close to production and that they would take ownership of, of bug issues. And there wasn't really a barrier to entry on that, right? right? They didn't have to go to another team. It wasn't another team's responsibility to handle. And I think that level of ownership in the end is a lot better for your company and its customers. I agree. I remember when, yeah, I, I remember my last job I started there and this was like my first week working there and they were talking about they were kind of like dropping insider information at some meeting one of the guys said hey if you're ever on a system and it's spiraling out of control and this was coming from us as the systems team see if this one programmer is logged in because they've been known to kind of cause problems and it was interesting because we had this dichotomy at the time of like there were developers and then there were the engineers who ran the servers and we used that quite effectively to build angry silos with each other at the time yeah it's cool that we, we don't really have that now, right? The people that are operating the app are also the developers. They have direct ownership over that bug. They're able to log in and, and check out, you know, performance metrics of the application and things like that. And I think the platforms really enabled, you know, us to kind of have that level of interaction and ownership still that's really been beneficial for us as a team and, and, culturally as well. This is one of my favorite parts about when I, when I was at Heroku working on an engineering team. Uh, yeah. I've been doing developer advocacy work for a couple of years now, but my favorite, one of my favorite parts about it was that you owned everything. You know, I talk mm -hmm. about in, in the Ruby community, it's very common for development teams to own their test um, infrastructure, for example, whereas like older shops, right. 
uh, maybe people who operate a little bit more waterfall will have like a QA team and there's a QA mm -hmm. phase even where the, the developers yeah. basically like throw their code over the fence and they're like, all right, yeah, I'll test it, make sure it works. Yep. And yeah. owning the code, I, I, I think it's really important for a developer to own the entire stack because they understand the entire stack and they're also responsible mm -hmm. for owning their own bugs that they're writing into there. And if you don't yeah. have your unit tests that would have caught your bug, then you suffer the pain of having that page yeah. come later. Yeah. And I feel the same way about the Heroku platform in that when we uh, internally deploy an application, if our team owns an application, we we own it forever. There's no team that maintains it. There are plenty of, you know, I talked a little bit about the red team. There are plenty of people who specialize and they come around and they help us out. But ultimately those security fixes, they're on us as a team to ship yeah. and to own. Yeah. And I think giving people that level of ownership on your development teams uh, is a really valuable tool for preventing those kinds of silos. Cause I've seen it happen over and over again. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it's, you look as companies grow and I think one of the common problems every single company out there has is they say, how, how are we going to figure out how to communicate better? How are we going to figure out how to get transparency at the information in the organization? And I feel like since day one, at least, with the interchange between the developers themselves and what's going on in production, there's no chance for that visibility not to be present. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really baked in uh, because they have that level of access, even though it's still safe and secure. And in an emergency, they know how to get in there and fix things and redeploy an application or restart an application. I remember at one company where I worked, it took us like seven steps to get the application right. out the door. And then rolling it back was not necessarily something that someone could do who had just started at the company. I mean, it may have taken yeah. three months to get around to learning how to roll back a failed mm -hmm. production deploy. Those are things that are trivial on Heroku and really important to spread control and ownership. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Well, again, thank you so much for taking the time, Brendan. This has been great. I really appreciate your insight. You know, it's funny when we're working on this side of the house at Heroku, it's hard to see our product through our customers' eyes sometimes. Mm -hmm. So I really appreciate your insights. Well, it's been an honor being on. I'm really glad uh, you asked us to jump on the show and you know, really, really love the product. Please, you know, continue to, to we will keep, keep building making it. awesome products. Yeah, we will try. We really maybe we it. may not. I can't promise you larger databases. We may have to keep those sizes <laughs> small to restrict bad behavior, but we'll see yeah. whatever yeah. we can do. I'm sure we'll find a reason to talk again soon. Thank you for joining Absolutely. me. Brendan. Take care. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Codish podcast. Codish is produced by Heroku, the easiest way to deploy, manage, and scale your applications in the cloud. If you'd like to learn more about Kodish or any of Heroku's podcasts, please visit heroku.com slash podcasts.